Well, we, you know that two weeks ago you had a different seating arrangement. That was on a purpose as we were looking at the passage here in John uh, regarding the foot washing uh, activity of Jesus Christ and his disciples. And we really, and I know some of you got real nervous. Some of you ladies are like, how can we do a foot washing when I have pantyhose on, things like that. And so we didn't. It was just to scare you a little bit. Um, no, it wasn't to scare you. It was to get your attention. And hopefully in the course of that, you learned that it really wasn't the physical act of foot washing that Jesus Christ was communicating, but like many opportunities that he took with his disciples, he took things of this world and took them into another realm. And that the foot washing was very evidently, very clearly communicated by Christ that if I don't wash your feet... You have no part with me, and that doesn't have to do with whether you had shoes or sandals on and whether you walked through dirt to get here. It has to do with your spiritual condition, and if you still have this soil of the world on you. That it had to do with forgiveness. It had to do with cleansing of our soul spirit, of our sin. And so we looked at the fact that Peter says, well, wash all of me. Well, I don't need to. The rest of you is clean. Well, what makes them clean? Jesus Christ is going to repeat uh, when we get, uh, oh, I don't know, about a month or two from now, uh, we get into some other portions of John 14, 15, 16. He's going to repeat, you're clean to the extent that you have received my word. And that, that is the mechanism by which we receive this washing, the washing of regeneration through the word given to us by the Spirit of God. And so as we receive that, we, but we pick up soil along the way. We pick up the dirt of this world as we walk through it. And Jesus Christ says we need to have that time of confession. And Jesus Christ is willing to cleanse us of that sin. Hence, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. A very important theme in most all of John's writings. And so we find this expression of God's enduring love for us was not that he is willing to wash your feet, but rather he is willing to do so much more than that, to clean you from head to toe, and then as you continue to pick up dirt along the way of life, he's also there to cleanse that. And that's going to become very important as we get to the end of chapter 13 here in John. So we looked at uh, the pattern or the illustration, the manifestation of enduring love uh, that he gave to his disciples. Here's an illustration. I who am your, you call master and Lord am washing your feet. Not just of humiliation, but of the whole idea that I'm here to serve you. And if I'm here to serve you, you ought to do it to one another. And we talked extensively two weeks ago about the necessity that we are forgiving people that we are going to go out and seek opportunities to offer forgiveness. But unlike enduring love, love which is unconditional commitment to another, that's the definition, unconditional commitment, unlike love, forgiveness is conditioned. Is conditioned from God's perspective. God doesn't forgive all men everything just because he loves them. He forgives men who meet the qualification if you... If you confess, I'm faithful and just. So forgiveness is conditional. It's conditional upon confession and repentance. Everywhere in the Bible, it is always conditioned upon that response of man to the conviction of sin. And so if we 
ignore that conviction, if we try to turn away from that conviction, if we, if we despise it and do not respond properly to it, our, we are still in our sins. Remember, that was also in this book of John. You will die in your sins, Jesus said to a whole generation of religious leaders. You are going to die in your sins. Why? Because forgiveness is conditional. Did Jesus not love them when he tells them that? Oh, no, he loved them. That's why he told them that. See, love is unconditional, but forgiveness is not. We wait. And so that's going to come out as well here uh, as we get to the end of this chapter. So we looked at the nature of God's unconditional love for us, how it was illustrated to them, and um, what it entailed. It entailed a forgiving spirit that lays out every opportunity and every possibility for people to receive forgiveness. That is, it is not us withholding forgiveness, it's them not wanting it. There's a big difference. Us withholding forgiveness is bitterness and wrath, and God calls us not to have bitterness towards one another or the world even. That we're always ready and desiring to forgive if they would simply meet the condition of forgiveness. And so we have a spirit of forgiveness within us, though we may still hold people accountable for their sin because they haven't sought that forgiveness. Then last week we looked at the betrayal of that love. What does it mean to betray the enduring love of Christ? And we saw that in the person uh, of Judas Iscariot. And we recognize, hopefully, that this isn't so far away from us. That Judas's were not out there and they didn't sneak around. They didn't have a different countenance. The lighting, the, the theatrical lighting and makeup wasn't different on their faces. <laughs> um, you can always tell the, the Judas's, I think, in most of Hollywood's productions. You can always tell who they're going to be. Um, no, he was completely... Uh, above reproach as far as the other disciples were concerned. He was one of us. He was, he was trustworthy. We, we've trusted him with the money bag. Um, he is right here with us all the way along the road. And I, couldn't, I would m more likely think I am the Judas than him. And that's why I asked Jesus, is it I? Am I the one that's going to betray you? Because I look around this room and I see no one else at this table the, I have a higher esteem of all of them than myself. Is it me? That's how respectable Judas was in this very tight-knit community of Jesus Christ. And so the question comes upon us, and we looked at that, how do we betray uh, love, and how does Satan uh, enable to use us when we have so much evidence of spirituality in our life without a reality of it in our life. And we saw the effect of unrepented sin in that respect as well. Why did Satan target Judas? Simply, he had continuing sin in his life. He was an embezzler, a thief, which makes him not only a thief but a liar, misrepresenting himself. And so we talked about the nature of, un, of unrepentant sin, of, of, of persistent sin in our life that we are not warring against as being that which sets us up to be the betrayer of our Lord. So now we come 
having dealt with Judas, and Judas has now been removed from the environment. Uh, and again, even after he leaves, even if, after he's identified by Jesus Christ, the disciples still think he's above reproach. <laughs> Couldn't be him. <laughs> he's going to take care of the poor or something noble like that. So we come to verse 31, and it says, So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? <laughs> Jesus answered, said, where, am I, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Jesus said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. And so we come into this environment and say, okay, we got rid of the Judas we got rid of the betrayer. Now we can really get into some very tender and, and, and special information for the loyal ones, the loyal followers of Jesus Christ. And we are getting there. We are going to get into that in the next few chapters. Uh, but we're still not done here in the rebuking aspect of this final meal of Jesus Christ with his disciples. And so we have him sit down and he expresses to us again a theme that we saw several weeks ago when Jesus Christ talked about his glorification. That he's not referencing the resurrection, ascension, his arrival in the heaven. That is not what he is talking about here. He is talking very specifically about his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his scourging, his crucifixion, his death. These are the aspects that he has said, now all of that is set in place. The cogs are starting to turn, and they're turning, and, and, the, and the second hand, and now the minute hand, our hand is, is right on. Now the Son of Man is glorified, not down the road, but this night. Before this night is over, Horrible things will be happening, and remember, please, that message, and if you don't, go back and listen. I think it's on the podcast, is it not? Yes, it is. All right, go back and listen to it. The glorification of God is not just when everything is going well, it is perhaps more glorifying to God when we suffer, and that's what the disciples understood once they received the Holy Spirit. They re recognized that they're beating us up because we're Christians. We're, they're beating us up because we're telling the truth. And they rejoiced in it. And they glorified God because they were going to be faithful to that task. Though it cost them everything. And that's going to come out extensively later on too. These are all themes John uh, is going to communicate to us that Jesus is going to really dwell on this last conversation of his pre-crucifixion life with the disciples. He's going to have other conversations with them after the resurrection, um, certainly, but uh, on earth. But this is his last one with them in this condition and under these circumstances. 
And so we come and we find him not surprisingly saying, now the Son of Man is glorified. Uh, and God is glorified in him, uh, not because of what we understand as victory, but what we would associate with failure, um, with pain, with suffering. And it is foolishness that we have so many books and so much confusion out there, and we wring our hands over how do the righteous suffer. And my question usually is very different than that. My, my question is, why don't we suffer? That should be the question we write volume after volume after volume after volume on, is why aren't we suffering? Because this is how we glorify God. If we live in an evil age and we have evil surrounding us, why aren't we suffering? The only reason we aren't suffering is because we are more like the evil than we are like the good. We are more like them than we are like God. Or they would hate us as much as they hate God. I do not understand that we create this uh, spiritual discussion and as though righteous people suffering is some kind of enigma. Righteous people not suffering is the enigma. That's the question. Why aren't we? Why is the Christian life so easy here, particularly in our experience? That should concern us. And so Jesus Christ, you might say, well, he was... God was glorified in this instance, and this is what he taught, and in raising people from the dead, and all the healing, and casting out demons. And Jesus Christ says, no, the real glorification of God it hasn't happened yet in my life. But it's about to. Now's the time. God is going to be glorified. He's going to be glorified in me. And thus, he's going to glorify himself uh, through me. And he's going to do it. <laughs> we even have a time frame. Immediately. This is it. So this conversation matters because something's going to transpire here immediately as we leave this place. This is this conversation's foundation. And so in that, reminding them of that information that we studied several weeks ago, um, we now come into this new commandment. He has already demonstrated enduring love to his disciples. He's given an illustration of it. He's manifested it before them. He has spoken of the one who will betray that love. And now he's going to call his people to love. So I crammed your chairs all together. I got rid of the center aisle. I reduced the number of chairs so you all would have to sit close together. And you're still too spread apart as far as I'm concerned. All right, for this sermon. <clears throat> Because you're Americans, you've got to have elbow room. <laughs> See, if I were in most other countries, they would be just, except for the Philippines, they all sat in the back scattered too. It was terrible. I was like, oh, you could tell the Americans started these churches. <clears throat> anyway, sorry, that's a little extra side. Try not to be a critical person. A new commandment, verse 34, I give to you that you love one another. And so we are going to talk about the commandment upon us to replicate enduring love. We've had it illustrated to us. We've had evidence of what it's like when it's betrayed. 
And we, we are warned against that. We need to be warned in our lives, and our hearts, that we are not the betrayers of God's love, even as we enjoy it. But rather, we need to be the replicators of the love of God. And this, Jesus Christ says, is a new commandment to you. And it can only be fulfilled, really, if we remove from our lives that which would set us up to be the betrayers of God's love. I believe there's a very strong order here, just like there is in 1 John. John follows this order, let's deal with sin, let's make sure that we understand that we need to be recipients of God's word, let's want to keep his commandments, and in the midst of that, we need to recognize we need to love one another. But this is the, one of the chief hallmarks of the Christian experience. And we're going to be talking a lot about this in the weeks to come, in, in the months to come. I'll be honest, it's going to take me two to three months to get through the next three chapters. All right? Um, because it's that important. These are the hallmarks of the Christian experience. Faith, no, sorry. <laughs> Peace, joy, and love. I gave you the underlying ones. I wasn't supposed to do that to you yet. Peace, joy, and love. And Paul, 1 Corinthians 13, says that love is the premium. It's the greatest um, in his estimation as well. John would agree 100% because Jesus commands it. This is the expression of your Christian walk is your love. And we often think, well, I have to love God. Well, yes, but you cannot say you love God and not love one another. And so the command to love one another finds its origins, finds its foundation in your love of God, that if you truly have received the love of God and love him, you will love his own. You will love those that he loves. And so we are called to love one another as the fullest expression of our Christian experience and walk and our commitment. And we are told how to do it. Not only that we are to do it, but we are to do it in a certain fashion. He says, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This is the manner of our love. This is the, the mechanism by which we love. We, we look at how Jesus Christ loved us, and we say, well, that's how I'm going to love one another. And this brings us into a very important word when it comes to real love, and that is sacrifice. Because that is the ultimate expression of love, is sacrifice. And I know that in our society, we have other concepts of this, and so we need to <laughs> talk a little bit about what sacrificial love is. Here has been, um, I, I, I'm going to pick up millennials today because this is a millennial statement. My generation did come up with this, I'm pretty sure. If they did, I was, must have had my head in the sand and didn't know. Um, I see these little things. I'm going to love you to the moon and back again. I think my daughter had one of those little plaques at her wedding or something. I'm like, eh. Okay, that, that's my response. Sorry. I'm, you can say I'm not a romantic. You can say I'm insensitive. Um, I'm fine with that. Here's what I've because I know it's not true, so you can say all you want. It doesn't make it true, right? And so um, here's my experience. 
here's my experience. Most people aren't ready to make the first five miles of that trip to the moon and back in their love. Because something's going to happen when you get five miles in elevation from here. Your life is going to be sucked out of you five miles from here. You see, you're not prepared. What you really should do is have a plaque that says, I'll love you to Walmart and back. Okay, because that's about as far as it's going to go. All right? Um, or Dillard's or whatever your favorite store is. I don't know. Because five miles straight up from here on your journey to the moon um, and back again, how much you love them, um, you're going to have no oxygen, hardly. You're going to be frigidly cold. You're, you're, bare, the, the, you're going to have no um, pressure. Atmospheric pressure is going to drop, which is going to make you even colder uh, and kind of balloon up a little bit um, because your interior pressure is going to keep pushing out. There's not a... And that's why I tell people, you know, us here at this altitude are just larger people because we don't have as much atmospheric pressure holding us in. That's what I tell people when they come visiting here, all right? Because um, if I were at sea level, I'd be like this, right? That's all it is. So <laughs> most people's concept of unconditional sacrificial love won't get them five miles up. Because they're going to encounter things that are life-threatening. And, whoa, I didn't sign up for this. Yes, that's exactly what you said. You see, we have built into, here's what my generation understood, um, and previous generations, we didn't use the moon and back. I, we probably did something else, I don't know. Because um, I'm not a romantic even then, back in the day. Um, but we've built something into when you get married. We've built in a series of promises and we've made these conditional or unconditional. We've, we've tried to communicate what unconditional love is in your marriage vows, in sickness or in health, for better, for worse, for richer, maybe for poorer. You see, we built those in. Where did those come from? They are trying to communicate to this very young couple, that, uh, usually, not always, um, that what unconditional love entails. It entails that no matter what the conditions around us are, no matter what the outside or even some of the inside issues of life crop up, that I'll keep loving you. And it's dependable. This is the agape love that these passages speak to when it says that we are to agape one another, an unconditional commitment to someone else that will even have access to everything I have to give. And so also in your wedding vows, we talk about I endow you with all my worldly goods. And basically everything I got is yours. And, and that's what we used to say. I don't know, now they make up their own vows and it's all kind of... Because they don't understand sacrificial love. They don't understand the nature of what we're promising there. All of who I am and what I have is at your complete disposal. So we're trying in those wedding vows to communicate what unconditional love is like. The problem is that most of us um, don't listen to those, don't take them to heart, and, and are pretty sure that they only apply if I'm happy. 
You see, what we should put in there is in happiness and unhappiness. I do. Whether I'm happy with you or unhappy with you, I will. And that is unconditional love. Jesus Christ is not just saying to love your spouse, love your kids. He says love one another. This is the hallmark of the Christian life. This is what the world should be able to look at and say, wow. They really care about each other. And not just when it's convenient, not just when it when it's, uh, fits into my uh, routine, not as long as it doesn't cost me too much. Um, all of those uh, demonstrate selfish love. And the world has that. The world has got that part figured out. Um, they know how to love their own. Uh, they know how to um, uh, love people that like them and that make them feel good about themselves. Uh, you know, because as soon as you make someone feel bad about themselves, you're a hater. Aren't you? No, what happened there is that they're a self-lover. You made me feel bad about myself, so you must be a hater. Jesus Christ must have been one of the greatest haters of all because he made a lot of people feel bad about themselves, including some of his very closest friends that night. Peter himself. You're going to deny me three times. Don't give me the stuff you're going to lay down your life for me. You're going to deny me three times before the cock crows in the morning. Hater. No, he's not hating. This is true love. This is what real love looks like and not the, the self-aggrandizing love that is so prevalent in our world. The only reason we have speech police and the PC community is because we have fostered an entire generation who loves only one thing, and that is themselves. They love nothing else, and that is plainly evident. And so you cannot, you have to tiptoe around everything you say about it, every relationship because their self-love is strewn around them like a giant landmine. And then they wonder why they have no intimate relationships. Because they only have a relationship with themselves. And so I have to take a lot of time to invest in what agape means and what sacrificial love entails. It entails pain. It entails suffering. It entails failure. It entails uh, being disappointed. All of that is going to be played out here, um, not only in what Jesus is going to say in the next few verses, but in the next few hours of his life. It is going to play out. So the first thing we find in the context here in these verses, verse 33. Little children, I shall be with you a little while. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, jump down to verse 37. Peter says, Lord, why cannot I follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus Christ, when he says I am going to go away, has already communicated what's going to happen. He's going to be lifted up. And everybody, including the multitude of the crowd, knew what that meant. That was a, a phrase that was commonly used in the day to refer to crucifixion. To be lifted up 
is not to be thrown up on your teammate's shoulders and made the hero. To be lifted up was not to be in a concert and being carried around by people's hands, hoping nobody will drop you. Um, none of those were in their mind. There was only one thing in their mind when they heard that phrase, the Son of Man will be lifted up, and that is, that's a crucifixion. He already communicated that. He says, I'm going away. I'm going to the Father is what he's going to finally say later on. They're going to say, oh, that's it. Um, you're going to heaven. Uh, you're going to die. You're going away, away. That's why we cannot come to you right now. You will one day. And so we begin to understand that it is, takes personal sacrifice. Peter kind of gets that. And he says, I'm willing to die for you. I'm willing. I'll lay down my life for you. Well, those are easy words to say. They, they can flow out of your mouth and they sound very noble and high. And we all love to say those things. I'm willing to die for my Savior. But sometimes death is the easy way out. If you've read many of the writings of some of the Chinese Christians, the Chinese pastor says the people who have been killed had it easy. The pastors that were martyred had the easy route in their minds. And in their writings, they make it very clear that uh, it's the men that are left behind who have way too many people to disciple that they could possibly do it, who are still uh, have all the, the things of this world moving against them and somehow trying to function an obedient life walk with God and ministry while all of this weighs down on them. And they're like, I would have preferred to have been murdered by my government than to do all this. This is a lot harder. And it's not an uncommon statement. In fact, one of your favorite Bible authors said the same thing. That's Paul, book of Philippians, you give me my choice, I'm off to heaven. Check me out, I'm done. Mission accomplished. He says, but, and that's better, but for you, I'll stick it out. That's love. Jesus Christ challenges Peter about his willingness to sacrifice himself, which Peter will have to do one day. It'll be decades away, but it will happen and tradition says that Peter was crucified like his Lord. Um, and uh, whether it's confirmed, whether we can really confirm it or not, his, state, what was, his desire was to be crucified upside down. Um, I, I can't find a lot of, of writings of first century people that, uh, first, second century people that uh, confirm all of that, but that's our tradition. So he is going to pay that price, but God's got a lot more work for him to do. He's like, you say you're willing to lay on your life for me. That might be the easy part. Are you willing to glorify God by suffering for me? Are you willing to stand in front of a crowd that is cursing me and say, I'm with him? Knowing that immediately you're going to be cursed and maybe drug away and beaten. And that's what Peter is confronted with the next few hours, and he fails, which brings us to another point of sacrificial love. Enduring love not only involves personal sacrifice, it also has an expectation 
of disappointment. Let me say that again. Enduring love has an expectation of disappointment. And this is why so many marriages fail, is because we do not associate enduring love with an expectation of disappointment. When I have you repeat after me and say, in sickness and in health, all you think about is that as long as it doesn't disappoint me. But when your spouse is sick and you have to care for them and, and they're moaning and groaning and they just got a cold but it sounds like they're dying um, and that's what every husband sounds like from what I can tell talking to women. Um, yes, include my own wife and children. Okay, everybody I know that's ever seen me sick. It's the disappointments. Well, this is going to ruin my life. Now I've got to be a caretaker. That's what you promised. You see, Jesus Christ knew Peter was going to disappoint him. Peter was going to fail. Jesus knew it. And Jesus comes to him and says, do you love me? Because I love you. And I've shown I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm not laying down my life for somebody who, in some noble thing, for some innocent person. I'm going to lay down my life for a man who just got done rejecting and denying me in public three times. I'm going to die for him. I also died for Judas, but Judas rejected it, the betrayer. True love, enduring, sacrificial love, anticipates. That is, it prepares ahead of time to be let down. To genuinely love one another in a church family like this is to recognize not only that we all have flaws, but that those flaws will come to bear in on me. That is, your flaws will disappoint me. They will do injury maybe even to me. They will fail me. You will let me down time and again, but I will still love you. I am unconditionally committed to your cause. And if genuine, biblical, <laughs> sacrificial, enduring love were really going on in our churches, it doesn't mean that there's never going to be disappointment and we're not going to ever let each other down. Um, in fact, uh, if that were the case, we would never have it tested. It is when we let each other down that our love for each other is tested, is best tested. Do you really love me, Peter? Do you agape me? This is the question Jesus asked Peter. And Peter can't answer it. Not the way Jesus wants him to. He says, I'll be your friend. I'll flatter you, but don't ask me to have this unconditional love for you. And Peter just couldn't make those words come out of his mouth. Because all that was ringing in his ears were his own words, I don't know the man, and his cursing of his Savior. He knew he had been a disappointment. But Jesus Christ was ready. He, he tells Peter, you're going to reject me. You're going to deny me. You're going to fail miserably, and yet I love you. 
brethren, you're going to fail one another miserably. I'm going to let you down many times in your life if you give me the chance. <laughs> Unfortunately, most of us don't give each other the chance, and if we let me down once, I'm out of here. And I remember having, when I was traveling around, meeting with a lot of pastors and stuff, I'd have pastors sit down with me, and this is pastors more mature than me, sitting down and said, well, you know, and, and he obviously had a really bad week, and he sat down, and he's like, don't ever let anyone down. I went, he says, I didn't get to a hospital call, and I let those people down, and now they're leaving our church. You know why? They're leaving the church because they didn't love their pastor. He didn't get to the hospital in time to visit them. They got well. <laughs> they didn't die. <laughs> he didn't get up to visit them. And they left. And they left angry and upset. What kind of pastor are you? You let me down, a human one. Do you love me? Are we prepared are we expectant of the failure and the disappointments that we're going to have in one another? Because genuine love is prepared for that. This kind of love, the sacrificial, enduring love, expects disappointment. It prepares for it. It's ready for failure. Go ahead, go, jump ahead with me to chapter 16. In verse 32, this is what Jesus Christ was prepared for. Look at verse 31. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Because now they're just saying, hey, you spoke plainly to us. Now we believe you are who you are, and that's exciting. Jesus Christ says, do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Jesus Christ knows that these, his closest intimates will abandon him in his greatest hour of need. In fact, prior to that, his second greatest hour of need, maybe some people contend the greatest, I would say the second greatest hour of need, they fell asleep. Oh, he's praying in Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood. He, they fall asleep. They failed him. Could you not watch with me one hour? You couldn't keep yourself awake for an hour during my intense struggle? Are you that weak? Yep. Did you stop loving him? Nope. In fact, that's when he loved him most. Because the real understanding of enduring love is when we expect and are prepared for and can smooth over disappointments. Love finds no fault. Read 1 Corinthians 13, see what it keeps no record of wrongs. You know what that means? That means I was ready for you to fail me because my love for you isn't conditioned upon you meeting my needs. It is unconditional. So I love you in spite of it and I'll prove it most when you fail me. Not if, when? And I try to counsel young couple. I said, you're going to get married, and I make them write out a list. And I shouldn't, I think the single women shouldn't, uh, at all here, men too, 
shouldn't be telling you this, but here's what we first counseling session. You come with me, you got to write a list. Everything wrong with the person that you're about to marry. Tell me everything wrong with the person you're about to marry. Everything you don't like about them. If you give me a blank sheet of paper, I won't do your wedding. Because you're in fantasy land. You have no idea who you're dealing with then. If you, have a, if you give me like 18 pages, you're going to have a long engagement, okay? But one of the first things I do is I take those lists and I say, okay, I got a list from her of what he doesn't like about him. I got a list from him of what he doesn't like about her. And I was like, okay, are you ready to live with this? You got to live with this. Don't think you can change anything on this list. Are you prepared to live with this? That's what love is. I'm willing to live with everything I don't like about you. Now, the next thing I do is I switch the lists. And I say, work on this. If you love her, try to change. But that's for him, not for her. For her, the statement is, you better be prepared. You're going to live the rest of your life with everything on that list. Not one thing is going to change. And if you're not prepared to do that, you don't love him. And you better not marry him. Because true love expects and prepares for disappointment. To be let down for failure in sickness and in health. There's one more on my list here out of this text of what it takes for us to replicate enduring love. And it's in the first half of verse 38. Um, Jesus says, answer says, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. I'm sorry, it's verse 36, the second, I can't read my own writing. 36. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. This is a really hard one. And it is perhaps the greatest test of what true love is. Jesus Christ knows what's going to happen to his disciples. He knows their future. He knows that they're going to suffer. He knows they're going to get beaten on, that they're going to be kicked and abused, that they are going to be hated by the world. He's even going to tell them later on, chapter 15, 16, be ready for this. This is coming. He knows that in this world you're going to have tribulation. He knows what's coming in their life. And he doesn't rescue them from it. He prepares them for it. True love sometimes is best expressed when we allow our loved ones to suffer what they need to suffer. But remember, we have the wrong end of the stick when it comes to suffering. That is the mechanism by which they glorify God. And if we take away that from them, we rob them of one of the very best tools for them to glorify God in this world. And I know, I know it. I'm a, I'm a husband, I'm a father, and I know you're pretty sure that I, I don't, have a sensitive bone in my body, but I know I do not want my children to suffer. I do not want my wife to suffer. Uh, I will take, I would rather have it all on myself 
I would rather take their suffering for them. But I also realize not only the, the limitations, I can't do that. For Jesus Christ, he could. But the necessity it is for sometimes for them to suffer. The necessity it is, and, I, and, and it's kind of funny because we tell our children this is going to hurt me more than you, and they're like, yeah, right. As we get ready to spank their bottoms. Because we recognize that, that suffering is necessary for their moral development. We recognize, hopefully, that as we watch our kids struggle with their schoolwork, that they need to be allowed to struggle. Because the struggle is what's going to make them stronger in their mind and in their body. We, we watch them go off to practice and we see a coach driving them till they're just about ready to collapse and vomiting. And it's like, why are you making my kids suffer like that? Be so they will compete. It will make them stronger. It will make them better. We don't go up and gripe at the coach. And we don't, and we don't go run it for the kids because that won't help them. And we hopefully will bring that into our spiritual lives and realize that if we love one another, sometimes that means we have to have a, a willingness to allow those we love to suffer. That they might glorify God. And this is a very difficult balance. that takes extraordinary amounts of wisdom, self-control, and understanding to say, when do I jump in and when don't I jump in? And we all feel that as a parent. At what point do I rescue my child from this, my young adult person from this that, that was born in my flesh and yet now is making other choices? At what point do they just need to live out their choices? And, and I made a commitment very young in my <laughs> life as a parent to say, to instruct my children, there's going to come a time in your life when you're going to make choices and I will not bail you out of those choices. You're going to have to learn from the choices you make and the disasters you create around your life that I need to take my hands off and say, learn. And does that mean that they have to go hungry and be sad and, and struggle? Yes. That is part of my love for them and is part of their growth and development and maturation. Why do we have so immature Christians around? Because we don't allow them the process of maturation. And that process is, is hard. And it's hard to watch. And as your pastor, I would love to intervene and make every little problem just disappear. And I have every confidence that Jesus has the same nature in him. But there comes a time when we have to just draw back and say, you have authority on your own will, you need to live out the choices you make, and I'll be waiting for you to make the right choices, and I will aid that. Jesus Christ understood this, and again, let's go ahead in chapter 16. <laughs> like I said, these themes are going to keep coming up in weeks and weeks to come. Um, I 
I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the, whole, the helper will not come to you. He knows that things are going to go really bad for these guys for the next few hours. And really for the next three and a half days. They're going to be in despair, in turmoil, confused, hunted. Um, uh, uh, Peter's going to hate himself for denying his Lord. Um, they're going to, it's just going to be, and Jesus Christ knows it's coming. And he says, listen, I would love to just, I'm trying to warn you ahead of time so that you will still believe. That's what he's been saying all along, so you'll still believe. So keep believing, keep believing, keep believing. Um, but you're going to suffer, it, but ultimately it's to your advantage that I go away. I know you don't want that. And I, I know it's going to be painful to process, but it's for your benefit. And there is a point where love says, this is for your benefit that I go away. I've got other aspects that I need to work on and you're not ready to receive and it's going to be not just three days before they're ready to receive the work of Jesus Christ. It's going to be longer than that. It's not until Pentecost that they really get it figured out. 50 days. 50 days. And so Jesus Christ recognize that I have to express this love for you, but I'm not going to be there for you. You're going to, I'm going to go away, and it's going to make you sad, but it's necessary. And our children, and even our adult children, don't always see the wisdom of us not raising a hand to help them sometimes. And they don't always see that as love, but it is. Now, am I promoting, you know, Lord helps those who help themselves? No, I am recognizing that in your journey to be a mature Christian, there are painful events that I cannot prevent from happening in your life. And I shouldn't. And neither should your brethren. We'll pray. We'll certainly uh, Weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, but we sometimes need to simply allow a suffering for a loved one because it's for their benefit, even when they're sad. And again, we have to go back to Job and just wonder at God's love for Job. Job had an incredible assignment from God. Bring glory to my name. And in my mind, when this conversation is over in heaven between God and Satan, God knows what Satan's going to do to Job, and a tear's got to be in his eye. But he also knows this is the best way for Job to finish his mission. Go ahead, Satan, do your worst. And this man, Job, suffers extraordinary loss. But again, this is tied to the message several weeks ago. Do not confuse that with an American philosophy that only blessings are benefits and are from God. So here comes the suffering, and was Jesus 
Was God insensitive to that? No, but he saw the necessity of it because it shut Satan's mouth like nothing else could. And here's the accuser in heaven has nothing to say once Job endures it and doesn't sin with his mouth. Wow. God is at work in your life. And if we love one another, we are going to lay down our lives for each other. And sometimes there's the hard work of not laying down our lives, um, having a willingness to lay our lives, but recognizing there needs to be a, a maturing process in your life that I need to let happen and let God work. And it's not because I am insensitive, but because I am in love. And those are the most difficult times for a parent, for a spouse, for a pastor, for each other to, to say, when it, do I not help? And when do they just need to get through this suffering by trusting in the Lord? And, um, and I struggle with that. I struggle with it not only for a small congregation, for you people, but for my friends. I would love to go out there and build every church in Rwanda. I, I would love to quit my job, sell my house, take all the money, and with all that money, I could build every church in Rwanda. I could do that. By the way, I'm resigning. No. <laughs> I could. No. At some point, we wait upon the Lord. We put all of our resources at his disposal and we move as we can and to the extent that we do, but we also recognize that there is a maturation going on that we need to sometimes allow. And it is one of the most difficult things not only to experience but to implement and to know when and to how, to what degree. And they seem to be counterbalanced. They seem to be opposites. It seems like you just said sacrifice everything for one another and yet allow each other to suffer. And you are exactly correct. And they are both aspects of enduring love. Because if we're over here, I'm praying for God's best in your life. I'm praying for spiritual maturation. And sometimes that requires me not to bail you out. Spiritually or materially or relationally to just say, you're going to have to live it. And I've had a lot of people walk away from this church because I wouldn't come in and bail them out. And rather, I took them to task and said, you made this choice, you live it. Why aren't you willing to live with your choices? You want me to compromise God's word and what righteousness stands for so you can have a higher place in the church? No, not a chance. This is your decision. You live with it. The consequences. I know it hurts. I know it's makes you sad, but it's necessary for the benefit of everyone that we have the highest standard of righteousness in our church. So because we don't understand this kind of love, we walk away from it much like Judas did. But Jesus Christ calls us to replicate it. Love one another as I have loved you with personal sacrifice, with an expectation of disappointment and failure, and by allowing the suffering of the one I love for a greater benefit. Let's 
pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And Lord, we sometimes ask the question, why do we have to go through all this? Why can't we be in your presence? Why couldn't we enjoy heaven now? And these are selfish questions. Forgive us of them. Help us to be ready to serve you faithfully by serving one another in love. We might have this commitment one to another that honors you, brings glory to your name, and testifies of the light into dark places. Lord, where we have failed to love one another, forgive us. And strengthen us as you have informed us this morning through your word and its teaching. You might convict us by your spirit. That you might empower us as well to truly love one another. As you loved us. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.